Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, almost unbelievably, in addition to the book that you and I have just finished, dot, 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 <laughs> you somehow have written yet another book with somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't be hurt, Jennifer. There, there are plenty of projects to go around and you and I are not through. Well, when I caught wind of it, like I literally could not believe that you had somehow managed to produce another book. So <laughs> we have a deal on this podcast that when you produce a book, which turns out to be disturbingly frequently, we <laughs> hand over the episode to you and your co-author so you can discuss it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, the problem with that, I think you're going to need to be involved because the problem with that is that when you are the author of a project, you think everything matters. And so be ready for like a, a six-part miniseries on Have You Heard unless you exert a little bit of editorial influence here. So much for my hope that I could I could phone this one in and take a little bit of a vacay after the exhaustion of finishing up our project together. So I have a feeling that without me, people will never be able to stop listening to this. Is that correct? You are the captain of this ship, Jennifer. Well, just fill us in a little bit. Tell us about who else is going to be joining us and and what is the what was this project about? So my co-author on the book is Ethan Hutt, who has appeared on the show numerous times before. Ethan is an associate professor of education at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And we have written together many times uh, since our days sharing an office in the basement of the Stanford School of Education. Uh, and mostly we have written about the role of assessment in education. And that may sound a little bit nerdy, and maybe some of our listeners are pretty excited about that. Um, but I think both of us would make the case that assessment shapes so much of what happens in education. It shapes the motivation of students, right? It, it influences what they think the point of school is. It shapes the work that educators are doing. It transforms the experience that families are having around schools. And so we finally decided to write a book about assessment technologies. So grades, right? People don't often think of grades as a technology, but they are. A through F grades are a technology that ends up being applied to a series of problems, like, for instance, student motivation, right? Maybe if we threaten them with bad grades, they'll be motivated to work hard. Another technology would be test scores, right? Test scores are a technology for trying to capture what a student knows and can do. And transcripts, right? A third kind of technology there where grades and test scores reside on a permanent record. Sometimes other information resides there as well, including the courses students have taken. And together, these assessment technologies are, you know, a core part of what 
the American educational system is producing. And it turns out it's not just here in the United States. It's around the world that these technologies are shaping the student experience, shaping the way that college admissions officers do their work, shaping how employers select future employees, shaping family interactions with schools, and so we decided to create a one-stop shop. Every question you ever had about this subject is going to be answered in this book. Well, one thing that I am particularly interested in learning more about is that, you know, you made this interesting case that our overheated, some might even say ridiculous debate right now about admissions in elite institutions, that actually this whole conversation about grades is is completely connected to that. Totally. One of the things that I think about a lot, because I am the parent of an eighth grader who next year will be going into high school, and she'll be thinking about her college applications starting in ninth grade. And and in some sense, I don't want her to, right? If I'm playing the role of good middle-class parent, I want her laser-focused on that from the time she sets foot in the door. In fact, I should have had her focused on that several years ago so that when she does step foot in the door, she's in the right classes, on the right track, in the right clubs, playing the right sports, getting ready to assemble the perfect admissions packet to the most selective institutions she could possibly get into. But, you know, there's this other part of me that actually cares about her experience, that wants her to learn, that doesn't want her to be stressed out, that wants her to see the process of education as something that has intrinsic value and not just extrinsic value. And of course, she's going to be bombarded by messages that it's all about the acquisition of tokens and credentials and that you're going to be able to cash all of that in for goodies at the end. And the goodies are social and economic opportunities that institutions that happen to be highly selective, right? And, and they're selecting on things like your grade point average, serve as gatekeepers too. So parents are not wrong when they say that your whole future could be riding on this. That, that's not wrong. It's messed up, but it's not wrong. And we need to recognize that at the same time, it is completely undermining the fundamental purpose of school, which is learning. Wait till your daughter gets the news that you've decided to homeschool her for college. I mean, why does she need to go somewhere? She's already got a professor. That's right, exactly. And uh, I think I can probably get her through in three years, which is save her a little bit of tuition and it'll, it'll also fatten my wallet a little bit because she will be paying for the other three years. Now to the main event, our special guest is Ethan Hutt. Have you heard superfans know him well? He's been on the pod more times than any other guest, and he is also one of Jack's favorite co-authors. Together, they have been trying to convince anyone and everyone that our obsession with grades, ratings, and rankings undermines actual learning. And when they make this case, the question they get more than any other is why not just dump all this stuff then? 
Why not just consign these quote-unquote assessment technologies to the dustbin of education ideas? It's a really good question. It also reflects the impulse of many generations of reformers where people identify a problem like the SAT as being unfair or causing a high stress or people teaching to a test. And the same with grades where people say, you know, students just care about their grades. They don't care about the information. And so let's get rid of them. And I think one of the most important arguments we make in the book is that all of these assessment technologies, so grades, testing, and transcripts really work together and in tandem to do so many different purposes. So for instance, to take getting rid of SAT scores, that doesn't change the underlying problem in the system, which is that we have a lot of competition. We have a lot of high stakes turning our grades and our our achievement into the reward of college admissions. And if you remove the SAT from it, it doesn't change the reality of that structure of that system. All it does is put more and more pressure on everything else. So the grades, the transcripts, college essays, recommendations. So it doesn't address the underlying problem of needing to communicate about how students have done. It doesn't change the fact that we're requiring our system to rank and rate the students. All it does is remove that technology, which doesn't actually, when you think about it, really address the problem. And it's the same for grades as well. If you remove grades, you still need to communicate about how students are doing, how assessment is happening in the classroom. And those audiences for that information don't disappear because you get rid of grades. Yeah, one of the things that I found really interesting as you and I were working on this project is that there were these multiple problems that arose kind of simultaneously but separately from each other. And you're just talking about the need for communication. So as we develop a more formalized education system, there are these immediate audiences, families, for instance, who want to know how their kids are doing. And then these more distant audiences, eventually college admissions officers or employers who want to know about what a student knows and can do. But at the same time, there's this other piece as well, which is about motivation. And I found it really interesting to be reading through the historical record with you and seeing so many educators talk about the challenge of motivation. And this is not totally separate from communication because a lot of the early conversations were about we need to begin motivating these students who are now compelled by law to be in our classrooms. And maybe it will be more of a motivation if we can let their parents know how they're doing and chiefly like that they're not doing their work. I think the broad point here is that if you don't address the underlying problem and you simply target the assessment technology, which is what most of the reforms that we look at in the book, and I think that people can think about today, you don't really solve the problem, you just displace it. Because people are still going to need to communicate about students, they're still going to need to synchronize their work across the system. So admissions officer needs to have some sense of what a student did and what the assessment was. So you still have those, those needs and people are going to continue to use them. So it, it doesn't really solve the problem, which is why We've seen in the past that solutions end up not being very durable, that the system snaps back and continues to use these technologies. So unless you're going to address the underlying problems, you, you probably are going to have a very short-lived solution. One of the things that I've been thinking about 
while reflecting on this book is about why it's more urgent now. One of the questions that people have asked us is, you know, why write this book in this particular moment? And sometimes they ask it in the context of the pandemic. Can you and I have our pot answers for that? You know, that during the pandemic, for instance, when grading was suspended, families did things like, you know, sign petitions, insisting that their students get grades. For me, I see a bigger time piece here, which is that this seems really urgent now in 2023 in a way that it wasn't in, let's say, 1990 or even the year 2000, and certainly wasn't in 1950 or 1960. A big part of that has to do with college admissions, which is just so much fiercer today than basically at any other point in American history. I think that's exactly right. If you think about some of the things that we identify as root causes of some of these problems that we were talking about, you know, this tendency to game schooling, this tendency to really focus on the exchange value. So what does my grade or what does that course on my transcript get me in the future? Um, when you think about the stakes attached to those, it just amplifies the need to engage in those behaviors, like the risk of not engaging in those behaviors. That's what we saw during the pandemic was this fear that if we disarm, if we say pass, fail for everybody or no grades, then we've disadvantaged ourselves tremendously in this like very, very high stakes game. So this idea that payoff is so much more valuable really amplifies all of these tendencies and all of these behaviors. And I think it's really important to say that we don't blame students for engaging in these behaviors. Well, our argument is that we've created a system that incentivizes certain kinds of behaviors and rewards certain kinds of behaviors very handsomely. And so we shouldn't fault students and we shouldn't fault families for correctly perceiving the stakes associated, but we really pay for the consequences. Every time that student asks us about, hey, is this going to be on the test? Or every time you hear a family say, well, what's is the AP that you can get an A on or do the best on? I mean, that's not a conversation about learning. That's a conversation about maximizing your game score in the schooling contest. I've been trying to think about whether it matters or not that so much of this activity around grades and test scores and transcripts is happening among a minority of fairly privileged families, it's happening at a very small number of highly selective colleges and universities. And I think the answer I keep coming back to is that it does matter because the families that are angling for an admissions advantage into, let's say, Ivy plus colleges and universities, right? So this would be the Ivies plus schools like Stanford or Duke or whatever they are exerting pressure on the entire system to give grades, right? They're exerting a pressure on the entire system to continue to use SAT or ACT scores because those are the tools by which their children end up winning this game, this ostensibly meritocratic game. And so let's step back and think about what we are asking schools to do here. We are not actually asking schools to educate students. What we're asking them to do is serve as a meritocratic sorting ground so that the winners 
can then collect their social and economic advantages basically upon receipt of admission to one of the schools that is a gatekeeper for high-paying jobs and a high-status position in our society, right? As soon as you get into Harvard, you are set. At least that's the perception. And actually, there's a lot of data that bears that out as well. And so if the system is designed then to channel a small number of winners into schools like Harvard, Princeton, Yale, then I think we have to ask really big, important questions about what the impact is on everybody else. I think there are really two important equity implications to what you were just saying about this sort of intensity that drives the rest of the system. The first is that students get the message that the goal of the system is to play the game and to win the game. And so students who either come to school finding themselves either behind in the game or actually not motivated by the game. Like if the whole motivational structure of the school is around the sort of gamification, the collecting of grades, it can be a real demotivator for students who come in and say like, that's not for me. Or, and this is the other side, that this game is rigged. That if everything comes down to prepping for a specific exam, and it doesn't have to be the SAT, it could be a gifted and talented uh, assessment. It could be for selection into a particular high school. If everything is built around these games and then we bring in the implications of the inequality in the, in the social life and in, in society that surrounds schools so that every student who has parents who went to school, has a high education, knows how the system works, can give advantage or can give help or guidance to their students. I mean, it just amplifies both the possibility of advantage that's not earned through the meritocratic system, but through outside advantage coming in and and sort of being smuggled through the system. And so I think a lot of times students respond to that. Students are aware when that science project comes in and it doesn't look like, you know, Johnny did it. It looks like Johnny and, you know, a whole set of engineer friends from Google did it. You know, that comes into it. And so I think there's a real concern that students are both getting the wrong message and are sense that they're not even playing in a fair game. And that can be hugely demotivating for students and then obviously have huge equity implications when we think about who makes it through the system and who ends up on top at the end. I think the only thing that I would add to this is that if we are trying to use these assessment technologies, and that, it, that is what they are, right? They are technologies. Grades are a technology for holding and communicating what students know and can do. Test scores are the same. Transcripts are the same, right? That's where you, you record the permanent record. That actually, we are then neglecting these other possible uses of these assessment technologies to actually help students learn, right? So, so think about just grades as an example here. If the purpose of grades has become a way of trying to game a system that ends with you gaining admission to a highly selective college or university. And it is not actually at all about understanding what your strengths and weaknesses as a student are. There are equity implications there because who are the students who would most benefit from strong communication with their teachers about their academic strengths and weaknesses, right? But if what we've done is alienate students who don't have the same kind of out-of-school supports and tailwinds that are 
pushing them along on their academic journeys. If what we do is we say to those students that actually this is all about sorting and ranking you so that you can be processed through this very rigid hierarchy, right? We've missed this opportunity to actually work directly with students and to communicate how they're doing, which is a really essential part of the work. And this is not to say that educators don't do it, but it is to say it's an uphill battle then because when a student sees that they have gotten, let's say, a D on an assignment, it doesn't read as, hey, listen, there's work to do and I'm going to identify the places where that work is to be done. It reads as, you are not going to make it. You should stop trying. This is not for you. And compare that with, I don't know, athletic coaching or music instruction that often happens so successfully, even despite the fact that teachers will say, hey, that is not where you need to be. You are not anywhere near the ceiling of your potential. That can actually be a very motivating thing to hear from a coach or an instructor, but it tends to not be motivating in the classroom. And I think that that has everything to do with the fact that students are smart and they perceive that these are tokens to be cashed in at some point, right? They see it as something entirely different from communication about how they're doing. Okay, so I have to say that whatever doubts I may have harbored about the relevance of Jack and Ethan's new book is no more. In fact, they've convinced me that the obsession of gaining access to elite institutions, one of the topics that irritates me most in the world, is actually far more damaging than I'd ever really considered. But obviously, that raises the next big question for us. What are we supposed to do? Or rather, where are they doing it better? Is there some place in the world where assessment is being done right, where it advances learning and is equitable in practice? Ooh, I know. I bet it's Finland. Or maybe South Korea. Or Estonia. Yes, I bet it's Estonia. Ethan says, not so fast. I mean, I think the first thing we should say at the outset at any time you do an international comparison is that these practices, these assessment technologies develop in response to specific problems and they grow up organically in the context of a specific environment. So all the things that we've said are particular to the U.S. and how we think about the results of schooling, the stakes of schooling, the structure of schooling. I mean, we have a very decentralized system, which is one of the reasons that we need these things that synchronize and help us deal with some of the, um, the variation and the decentralization that we have in our, in our system. It's always a little bit of a fool's errand to just try to steal a practice from somewhere else and just plop it down and hope for the best, though people have tried. The second thing that we should say is that actually, when you look around the world, you see that many, 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 many of the same technologies, so grades, testing, transcripts are out there in the world. And we actually, in the book, we talk to a bunch of teachers about what their experience is with assessing their students. And those teachers reported to a person struggling with the same set of problems, the stakes around assessments, this concern that students hear one thing, which when they get a grade, which is really just about their future as opposed to about their learning. So this idea that there's some secret magic in the world, people, I'm sorry to disappoint the listeners, but doesn't really exist 
Ethan says that plenty of countries also offer cautionary tales when it comes to ratings and rankings. Take, for example, the places where everything hinges on how students fare on a single test, like China's infamous National College Admissions Exam. We've decided that we want to balance things around both grades and test scores and other things like extracurricular activities. There are many countries that have decided that they are going to go all in on a single assessment. And that goes to something we were talking about earlier, where you can remove some of the pieces, some of the technologies we use, but that just amplifies the stakes around the other ones. So I think we need to be really cautious before we look abroad to find the solutions to our problems, because they're really, one, quite specific to our system. And two, if we if we adopted some of those solutions, we actually might find that some of the concerns we have around, say, the, the place of tests at the top of our system might actually be amplified when we look abroad, not diminished. Yeah, I'm just going to make a couple observations about the fact that grades, test scores, and transcripts are common across the world. And one of them is that as we did our research on this, like trying to explain what's going on, an obvious answer emerged. That's the influence of colonialism. So if you look, for instance, across, let's say, the continent of Africa, what you often see is the lingering influence of the British education system or the French education system. And it's not simply that leaders in many of these African countries just didn't want to be bothered to overthrow this colonial assessment regime. It's that it continues to serve a purpose in many of those places, right? That students in Nigeria actually do benefit from taking A-level exams because that's one way to gain admission to British colleges and universities where they can then gain the kinds of social and economic advantages that students in the United States are trying to gain when they're applying to college or university. And a second is just about isomorphism in education, which is a fancy way of saying same shapedness. And we tend to see that as a phenomenon in education, largely because school is a kind of social phenomenon. And you need to get people to believe that it is legitimate, that it's real, that what you are doing is actually the sort of standard that has been set. And of course, everybody's looking around all the time to try to figure out what is legitimate? What are real practices? What are effective practices? And the result is that you see a lot of sameness across the world. And it isn't true only of education. You see it in realms like government. But it's particularly true, I think, in education because so much social trust is required to get people to believe that this is something we should tax ourselves to do. And this is something that we should all be sending our children into, right? A system that, that will benefit our children. In case you missed that, isomorphism is a fancy way of saying same-shapedness. And yes, that will be on the test. Back to Jack and Ethan's book, the last section of which is devoted to the question of what we can do about the fact that grades, ratings, and rankings are eating away at actual learning. This, by the way, is the part of the book that they were the least excited about writing, in part because, as you already know, there aren't easy solutions, but they do offer a few. Well, I want to encourage everyone to look at the book, engage with the book. So I won't give away all the, the solutions, but one of my favorite ones, uh, which I think is really important and goes to a lot of things we've been talking about, is the possibility that we could 
overwrite grades, make grades overwritable. And the basic concept is that one of the big problems with our grading system is that the way we grade, it doesn't encourage what we want, which is improvement and steady work and students responding to feedback by working harder. Instead, what it does is is that people say, well, I got to be, my career is ruined. They see immediately the sort of catastrophizing about the future. And so the possibility that we not make grades permanent, that we actually allow students to overwrite their grades when they improve, I think is a really good solution. Like if we think about other competencies, if I asked you, could you bike ride? You wouldn't submit to me a transcript of all the times that you fell off. You know, you'd say like, yes, that's a competency I have. I can successfully ride a bike. And so this idea that we might update transcripts or eliminate that permanent threat, I think is a really nice way to encourage learning, keep grades, so be realistic about it, but direct grades towards values that we really want to have in our schools. I'll name one that I felt particularly optimistic about, and that was the idea of the double-clickable transcript. We sort of stole the imagery there from the world of technology, but the idea that you aren't just accumulating these symbols which may actually signify nothing, right? That instead of just trying to get an A or a 5 on the AP test or a 1600 on the SAT, that the learning itself would matter and that the transcript would be a digital document that could be opened up to show what you actually have been able to produce as a student. And this might then restore some of the actual use value rather than just the exchange value of the credentials that students could actually feel motivated to gain the skills and not just gain the token that is a signifier, ostensibly, of possession of the skill. I think the last item that I think I would want to throw out and again encourage people to look at the the rest of them is to actually redirect our energies toward assessments that really reflect the skill sets that we want students to learn. I mean, for a long time, we've talked about having tests that were, quote, worth teaching to, but we've never really achieved that. And I think we do, we can, there's lots of examples, whether it's portfolios, which you see like in AP Art, or you look at at the graduate level, we have lots of exams that are directed towards very specific competencies that we want people to develop. And we assess those and we have rubrics and we do all the things that we do with normal assessments, but they're at real competencies and require maybe whole semesters or whole years worth of work toward the assembly of a portfolio or a set of work that actually will be assessed. And when it's assessed, will tell us whether students have met real benchmarks of learning that we care about. That was Ethan Hutt. He's an associate professor of education at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and the co-author of a brand new book with our own Jack Schneider called Off the Mark, How Grades, Ratings, and Rankings Undermine Learning, but don't have to. And Jack and I will be right back to grade Ethan's performance and to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. Christopher Rufo has a new book out, And as one reviewer recently charged, it's full of exaggerations and outright falsehoods. If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast to become a supporter. So, Jack, I was so interested in the discussion about higher ed and how this obsession with sort of token collecting is reshaping 
you know, how we view higher ed and the process of applying to get into a school and, and what kids expect when they get there. And the New York Times magazine just devoted an entire uh, issue to, to higher ed. And I, I thought it was really interesting for a lot of reasons. It was wildly contradictory. Like you had the, the various articles contradicting themselves from one page to the next. But uh, there was a good piece by Paul Tuff about how Americans are are losing interest in college. And you get this kind of this this sense that it's it's very quickly going to break down along political lines. And so you could see that the experience of token acquisition could become very quickly yet another one that that really is, you know, defined by your parents' partisan identity. And that if you are the child of Democrats, you go into school understanding that it plays a particular role and it is a way station on your way to a particular future. And that if you are a child in a red state or of uh, Republican parents, you're viewing it completely differently. And so I think it's another example of how this, the topic of your book is actually completely related to everything else we're seeing uh, with respect to both higher ed and K-12 right now. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Jennifer. And you know, when you think about the way that higher education has been framed, it has these really important effects on what we think the importance of K-12 education is, right? If higher education is the gateway to a good life, and if the, the golden gate is at the institution that is hardest to get into, then the purpose of K-12 education is to get you into the most lustrous gate that you can possibly get into. So if the purpose of K-12 education is preparing you for competitive college admissions, that raises a really important question. What if you aren't going to a highly selective college or university? What if you aren't going to college at all? And to your point about red states and blue states, you know, I think that both possible partisan framings are wrong and really problematic, right? The, the traditional democratic framing has been that education is the great meritocratic sorter and that you get what you deserve, right? That by virtue of what you have shown that you're able to do and by virtue of uh, what you've shown you know at the K-12 level, you get into colleges and universities of various ranks in prestige, and those then provide you with social and economic opportunities aligned with your merit. Well, that's wrong. We know that the vast majority of students at the most selective colleges and universities come from economically privileged families. Right? It is not a meritocracy, but if we look at the other kind of partisan framing and say, well, the whole game is rigged, right? that this process of trying to find the highest achieving students, the best and brightest, and aligning these post-collegiate opportunities with whatever our assessments of merit are, that that's all bunk. What you're essentially saying is that we're just going to accept that we are going to inherit inequality. We're just going to reproduce the social order over and over. There isn't going to be a mechanism for trying to create opportunity. And so 
One of the things that concerns me is how then can we try to use education as a mechanism for creating opportunity for young people without creating a rigged game? And I think that's one of the things that Ethan and I spend a lot of time talking about in that book is if you're not going to have a rigged game, then it can't be gameable. It can't be uh, a, an arcade-style scramble for tokens, which is exactly what we have right now. And the only way that it can't be gameable is if learning is at the core, if you actually have to learn something, right? And our assessments need to do a better job of encouraging learning as a practice in schools, right? Tests need to change. Grades need to change. The nature of the transcript needs to change. And we also need to do a better job of trying to capture in record form what students know and can do. We can't just wash our hands of the responsibility of trying to record student learning because, in fact, it does matter that we try to create opportunity for young people in this country based on the fact that they develop real skills and real knowledge and that we can offer opportunities that are aligned with the things they know and the things that they can do. It's just if we try to distill all of that down into something like a letter grade or a test score, right, whether it be an SAT score or an AP score or some other test score, and try to record all of that on a transcript, which is generally shorter than a Twitter post, then we are creating an inherently gameable system that absolutely is going to advantage some families over others. So, it, you know, it's, it's complicated, and I think that it's really worth our time and attention because it gets to the very heart of what the purpose of school is. Well, I have to say that when I first learned that you and your BFF, Ethan Hutt, were writing a book and that we were going to be showcasing it on the pod, my reaction was perhaps not as enthusiastic as it might have been. But I've really been, I've been won over. <laughs> I, I, think, I think you intoned the word snore to me at one point. That is, it is possible that I may have intoned the word <laughs> snore, but I think I speak for our our vast listening audience. Do you are you secretly working on any other books that we need to know about? Do you really want the answer to that question? Yes. Yeah, Nate Jones and I are writing a book right now about teacher time use. Well, I guess we'll be making time for that in the future. <laughs> Well, we've reached that time in the program where we are winding things down, but also trying to lure you over the paywall. As our regular <laughs> listeners know, we rely on your support to keep the podcast going and to pay our excellent producer. And we do that via patreon.com. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast, and you'll see a list of the various extras that you can get just by throwing a few dollars our way each month. And one of those extras is a trip into an area that we call the weeds, where we discuss some topic, usually because it's of obsessive interest to one of us, and that would be me. And today we are going to be talking about Christopher Rufo's new book. It turns out that it is plagued by some inaccuracies. Does that matter? <laughs> uh, I think this is where you insert AI Jack to, uh, to do the pitching 
for you. Um, well, just in case Jennifer doesn't manage to get the AI version of me uh, shilling for the show, I'll insert what I usually add, which is that the show is free, and we do it because we think it matters. And if you think it matters too, then please support the show in whatever way you are able to. So share it with friends or colleagues, anybody who you think might enjoy it, tweet about it, or you know we're going to have to get on these other platforms, Blue Sky, uh, Threads. Right now we're still on the platform formerly known as Twitter, at Have You Heard Pod. Uh, so tag us whenever you're sharing on that platform. And, uh, you know, we just, we appreciate you listening. So make sure that you are a subscriber to the show and that you get the latest episode whenever it drops, which is approximately every two weeks. And now they really will be every two weeks ago because we definitely slowed down a little bit over the summer writing season. And Jack, I have to tell you, uh, with respect to AI, Jack, a disturbing number of people could not tell the difference. Oh, no. That's... I've got, I've got to work on my inflections when I'm when I'm in the flesh here. Then, well, folks, uh, <laughs> why don't you sign? Why don't you sign us out? Being inflective. Yeah. Okay. Really, and a really inflective sign out. Hey, everybody! Thanks so much for listening. I'm Jack Schneider, and I'm Jennifer Berkshire. 